we've directed our investment managers that any and all monies that we have invested in Russia to pull it out. I knew that we were going to win, but I thought that we were going to win by like maybe like a few votes. I didn't think it was going to be like almost 700. Many people in Palestine as around the world are paid too little to support themselves and their families. They've overstayed their visa and they don't have lawful work rights. So what they do is they work in the sector for cash in hand. But with that comes the risk that if you're not on the books and you have an injury or illness, then there's, there's no workers' compensation. Why are we socially inferior despite our parents being highly educated and having respectable jobs? What it hurts me especially is these ballet companies that do this. Uh, years ago, they all traveled with an orchestra or hired an orchestra. Uh, ballet, you know, I understand it's the dancing on the stage, but it's also a huge chunk is the music underneath, you know. Watermelon patch. I let the weathered scarecrow try on my straw hat. Sunday is International Haiku Day. It doesn't bear much connection to what's new in the labour movement, but that offering was by Daryl Lindsay, and this is the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly. This week's show is really a reflection of the international breadth of concerns which are interrogated and explored by members of the Labour Radio Podcast Network. And quite fittingly, it includes three shows that have solidarity in the title, but they're all really very different. We're going to begin with the Solidarity Podcast from Teamsters Local 769. If this one's new to you, Local 769 dates back all the way to 1964 and they're situated in South Florida with members from Orlando all the way to Key West. They recently passed a resolution in support of the Ukrainian people and you're going to hear an excerpt from that right here. We then go to the belaboured podcast from Descent Magazine where Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen were joined in conversation by Michelle Valentin Nieves from the Amazon Labour Union to discuss their recent and groundbreaking victory in New York. Valentin Nieves takes us inside the campaign and tells us a bit about what's next for the ALU. The Solidarity Centre podcast travelled to Palestine, not via Zoom, and spoke to Mohammed Badri from the Palestinian General Federation of Trade Unions about a recent campaign to raise the minimum wage probably heard stories about the challenges faced by migrant workers working the harvest in fruit and vegetable fields, but how do conditions vary down under? The Squatters and Unraged Workers show in Melbourne spoke to Shane Ralston, National Organising Director with the Australian Workers Union, about the seven circles of migrant worker hell. Terrifying. We then go to Reinventing Solidarity. Produced by the Murphy Institute at the City University of New York, Cafriato spoke to Sujata Gidler about her recent memoir, Ants Among Elephants, An Untouchable Family in the Making of Modern India, which is a fascinating bottom-up view of life within India's caste system. We're going to end with a quick trip back to Motor City. The Flash Ferrance was joined by veteran trombonist George Troyer, from the Detroit Federation of Musicians where they discussed the alarming trend of using backing tracks to accompany live stage performances. I'm Patrick Dixon with the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly Orchestra. Here's the show.
brothers and sisters. This is the Solidarity Podcast from Teamsters Local 769. I'm Brian Besbiati, but everybody calls me Bez. I do want to mention something that was brought up today in our executive board meeting, and that was a, a resolution that we've passed at Local 769 with regard to the situation in Russia and the Ukraine. And I'm just going to read to you all the first two or three paragraphs of this, but I, I just want to give you a thumbnail of, of what we passed in our executive board today. Teamsters Local Union Number 769, Resolution on Standing with the People of Ukraine. Whereas Teamsters Local Union Number 769 joins with Teamsters Joint Council 75 in its condemnation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and calls for an immediate end to the Russian military attacks on civilians and withdrawal of Russian troops. Whereas Teamsters Local Union Number 769 stands in solidarity with Ukrainian communities facing increasing violence and with the Ukrainian workers and families who are impacted by this war. Teamsters Local Union Number 769 stands in solidarity with Ukrainian unions who have struggled for decades to guarantee the right to organize and bargain collectively, to protect working people from precarious or informal work, and to fight climate change, gender-based violence, and harassment and employment discrimination against LGBTQ workers in corruption. Whereas Teamsters Local 769 encourages union members and all people of goodwill to participate in protests, prayer vigils, and other public events calling for an immediate end to the Russian military attacks and immediate withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukraine. You can read the entire text of it up here. I just want you all to know that whatever we can do as an organization, as little perhaps impact as it will have, we're going to do it. And at our joint council and on our health and welfare funds and retirement plans, uh, where we're trustees, we've directed our investment managers that any and all monies that we have invested in Russia to pull it out. Again, it's a drop in the bucket, but if everybody were to do this, it can be definitely impactful. So I do want the membership to know that we're all part of this world, and it's uh, just awful what's going on over there. But let's hope that it comes to a peaceful resolution sometime soon, although obviously it's, um, it's pretty dire circumstances. The full resolution can be found at the link in the show notes. Until next time, remember, in unity there is strength. Bye, folks. to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Well, by now you've heard the news. Amazon workers have formed the first union at that company in the United States. The Amazon Labor Union took shape at the JFK 8 facility on Staten Island through months of grassroots organizing, a carefully calibrated public campaign, extensive online networking, and most importantly, countless hours of conversations between organizers and their co-workers inside and outside the warehouse, encouraging workers to channel their frustration and despair at their job into the creation of a democratic organization that could challenge the world's e-tail behemoth. They faced down a barrage of anti-union propaganda from Amazon, various shady legal shenanigans aimed at disenfranchising workers, a complex National Labor Relations Board bureaucracy, and the challenges of being a completely independent organization not tied to any large mainstream union. 
The ALU was launched by Chris Smalls, a former manager who was fired at the start of the pandemic after he protested Amazon's lacking safety practices, and Derek Palmer, a hacker at JFK 8. In addition to the resistance they faced from the management, they also had to overcome skepticism from coworkers and to persuade them that empowering themselves with a union was worth the risk. I spoke with Michelle Valentin, a member of the Workers' Committee of the ALU, about her journey as an organizer and the next steps for their union. This was uh, something that I think uh, surprised a lot of people, maybe even surprised some of the organizers, but how do you feel after this victory? Honestly, I surprised at uh, the actual numbers because I, I like I knew deep down that we were going to win because the conditions in the facility are just horrendous at this point. So I knew that we were going to win, but I thought that we were going to win by like maybe like a few votes. You know, I thought maybe it was it was going to be like we were going to win by like 20 or 30 votes. I didn't think it was going to be like almost 700 votes. Votes. That's what really shocked me was the um, number of people that voted, um, you know, in our favor. What department do you work in? At what point did you start talking to your coworkers? Were you talking after your shift, like between tasks or how did you figure that out? So how that happened was I pretty much have transferred um, several times because I've been there three years. And I, sometimes I get along with the managers, sometimes I don't. And I was getting into a uh, heated argument with one of the managers and Derek Palmer, which is like the vice president of ALU, saw me like from a distance and he approached me later on. And um, he, he says, hey, you know, I saw you arguing with one of the managers, you know, can I just ask you, you know, what was that about? And, um, you know, I told him, you know, what it was about. I told him how long I've been there. And he's like, well, you know, I'm part of the ALU. He's like, and and we're trying to get people um, to sign these uh, little cards so that we can start up a union. So that was the first time that I actually heard of it. And that was that was like maybe eight months ago, seven or eight months ago. From there, I started talking to my coworkers and then I started um, tabling, which is pretty much sitting at a table with a whole bunch of literature and speaking to people about the union, about what we were trying to do. Um, I started passing out literature outside. I started talking to people outside, mainly at the bus stops is where we could have conversations with people since it wasn't inside of the building. Um, because inside of the building, you have to be very careful because we didn't want any of the managers to see us because it's so easy to get fired inside of the building. It, it all has to remain like in this, in this secrecy type of a thing. So pretty much it was like limited to like the break rooms, the restrooms or the bus stop. When you were um, reaching out to people, did uh, what were some of the things that you heard in terms of you know, when people express skepticism or uh, weren't sure, um, what were some of the yeah. sticking points that you had to, you know, talk them through? Yeah, so there there was definitely um, a lot of skepticism and people just, it depends. Like there's, there's such a diverse group of people inside of Amazon. It's not like an outside union, like the Teamsters or, you know, 1199 or any other outside union, this union is actually internal and it's going to be run by people like me that work here. And I've been here for a few years and I just, I'm just trying to make positive change. 
That's all I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to steal your money. I'm not trying to get you fired. I guess I'm I'm curious as to um like did you know a lot about unions before or had you had any experiences positive or negative with them or like what what kind of turned you on to the idea of unionization? So I haven't personally had a union with any of my jobs, but I have other uh, people or really close friends or family that are involved or have union jobs. So that's how I've gotten to, you know, see how it, what a big difference it is between having a job that has a union and having a job that doesn't have a union or a workplace. Did you ever just think that they were going to fire the organizers? <laughs> so I, we were pretty, we were very scared that uh, we were going to get terminated for every little thing. So that's why we were very, very cautious. So we didn't, we didn't get terminated, but three of the AOU uh, members did get arrested in front of the facility. Um, Chris was one of them. So technically he's not an employee, but the other two employees, Brett and Jason, were arrested on their lunch break. Um, and we were getting food delivered inside of the break room um, because another thing that we did was is we served food. While we were tabling, we would serve food. Like, let's say we would get, like, baked ziti or pizza or, you know, rice with chicken. Um, and we would give out food. And then while we were giving out food, we would give out literature. So we were getting some food delivered. And... Um, Felipe Santos and the assistant uh, manager, Zachary, they called the NYPD and said that they were trespassing inside of the building. And the NYPD pretty much arrested um, all three of them and kept them in a holding cell for like seven hours. There were workers, but they were trespassing in their own workplace. Yeah, I guess they thought that maybe getting those three people arrested, especially Chris, because he's the leader of the AOU, they figured if they get him arrested, that's going to scare everyone else. And hopefully they'll just, you know, let this whole thing go. They were wrong. <laughs> yeah. Cause then that, when that happened, that's when we got like really pissed off, you know, it's like, it, it's like everything that they tried to do, it did the exact opposite. Like they had intentions to do certain things and it just backfired on them like all the way around. Now that you're sort of moving into like the next phase of the organization, how will things change? We have another vote coming up for the building next door to us. LDJ5 is literally right across the street. So that's going to happen at the end of this month. Um, They're going to vote at the end of this month. So what we're hoping is that if we're unionized, in JFK 8, and then LDJ 5 unionizes in LDJ 5, then Amazon will have absolutely no choice but to negotiate with us. Thanks once again to those of you who have supported the show financially over the past nine years over at the Descent website or now at Patreon, patreon.com slash belabored. We really appreciate your help making it sustainable for us to do labor journalism. If you want to share your story of working or organizing, you can, as always, email us at belaboredatdescentmagazine.org. If you're an education worker or a postal worker, a workaholic or unemployed, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes... 
visit dissentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. Hello, sisters and brothers, and welcome to the Solidarity Center podcast, an interview show that highlights and celebrates the individuals working for labor rights, the freedom to form unions, and democracy across the globe. I'm your host, Shauna Bader-Blau. Like workers everywhere, workers in Palestine want a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. But many people in Palestine, as around the world, are paid too little to support themselves and their families. Unions in Palestine are working to change that, and they are making significant progress in boosting the minimum wage and pushing lawmakers and recalcitrant employers to establish and honor a wage floor for all workers. Here to tell us more is Mohammed Badri. Mohammed works in the West Bank at the Palestinian cellular firm Joel, where he heads up the union at the company. He has been deeply involved in union campaigns to raise the minimum wage and recently was elected to the Executive Committee and General Secretariat of the Palestinian General Federation of Trade Unions, or PGFTU. The PGFTU is the umbrella federation for unions across the West Bank and Gaza. A couple of notes before we start. Mohammed will refer to the 48th region, and these are the lands of historic Palestine, which became Israel in 1948. And this episode on the Solidarity Center podcast will be published in both English and Arabic language versions on this feed. March 2021, there was a conference for dialogue between the different production entities and those responsible for, from the unions of Palestine and the workers, the Ministry of Labor and those in charge. And the discussion was that this minimum wage that was already reached in 2012, which equals almost $450, was not enough for workers to cover or afford their living, it was not good for them to lead a, a life with dignity. Three uh, most important achievements that uh, we managed uh, to uh, get uh, was to increase uh, the minimum wage to 1,880 uh, shekels, which is almost uh, 750 USD per month. And uh, also we connected uh, this achievement uh, with uh, activating uh, labor uh, uh, courts uh, to uh, look through the uh, labor uh, and uh, workers' uh, cases that uh, are delayed at uh, the courts and there are uh, bottlenecks at courts that may reach 10 years. So we wanted this to be accelerated uh, and to give uh, the workers their rights. And the third was that there will be penalties for employers who are not committed to the minimum wage that is approved uh, by uh, the end of uh, the uh, dialogue conference. But for women in Palestine, the hill is also still pretty steep. Women continue to make significantly less than men and routinely earn below the minimum wage in sectors like healthcare, education, textile and apparel, and public services. The dire situation in Ukraine is front of mind for so many people, and I want to encourage you to join us in supporting humanitarian relief efforts there. The International Trade Union Confederation has an emergency fund and is working with Ukrainian partners that are providing support to families who desperately need assistance with food and water and medical supplies. 
the labor movement has dedicated itself full-time in Ukraine to providing emergency assistance to people seeking refuge from the war. Workers at Nova Poshta formed a union there a few years ago and are working 24-7 to deliver essential supplies like medicine and food. The train conductors are carrying refugees to safety. Healthcare workers are caring for the wounded. So many of these tireless heroes are union members, and their unions are stepping up and supporting Ukrainians in need. You can find links to these organizations and more about what unions are doing during the Ukraine crisis on the episode notes for this program. Thank you, Brother Mohammed Badri, for bringing to light all the good work happening in Palestine and for showing how unions are the voice of workers advocating for fair wages and social protections like unemployment compensation. You can follow and subscribe to the Solidarity Center podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your shows. Learn more about the Solidarity Center at SolidarityCenter.org and follow our social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Solidarity Center podcast is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, and our show is produced and engineered by Adam Yaffe. A special thanks to the staff of the Solidarity Center who assisted with this podcast. In more than 60 countries around the world, we work to ensure a righteous future for workers. Dignity, freedom, equality, and justice. For the Solidarity Center podcast, I'm Shauna Bader-Blau. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show. Between 5.30 and 6.30 p.m. Here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Exploitation in the industry wasn't the exception, it was the norm. In the horticultural sector, which is that part of agriculture that produces fruit, vegetables, flowers and nuts? It was routine. Shane Rolston, who is the National Organising Director of the AWU the Australian Workers' Union. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, temporary migrant workers were about 11% of Australia's total workforce. Prior to the pandemic, Australia's horticultural workforce um, was a bit of a mix. So there's always a solid core of Australians who um, work in the sector and they normally make up between 20 to 27% of the industry. Then the the rest are basically um, predominantly migrant workers. What used to be backpackers before the pandemic, they used to make up about 60,000 60, thereabouts of the workforce in that sector. And then you've got a, a mix of other migrant visas like the Seasonal Worker Program or the Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme, which are been renamed now to be called the PALM, the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Program. And there's also uh, what we call a, um, a CD underbelly to the, to the sector as well. There's a, a roundabout somewhere between twenty and 30,000 undocumented workers. So their migrants who come over might be on a temporary visa or a visitor's visa. In some cases, students who come over and they've overstayed their visa and they don't have lawful work rights. So what they do is they work in the sector for cash in hand, and that normally sits at around somewhere between 8 and $15 an hour. But with that comes the risk of if you're not on the books and you have an injury or illness, then there's, there's no workers' compensation. There's no medical cover because you're an undocumented worker. You can't go to a public hospital. And agriculture, horticulture is consistently in the top two or three industries each year for fatalities and workplace injuries. So it's, um, 
it, it's you know it's it's a nice job if you can get it, but it's also a dangerous job and it's hard work. People die in the industry every year. Since there's been a shortage of backpackers during the pandemic, because back, most backpackers went home, as, as you would expect in a, in a crisis, but during that shortage, then the number of undocumented workers has gone up, but also the, the number of Australians working on farms has gone up as well, documented, so that's been a good thing. What you're just describing there is what I've heard described as a segmented workforce. So with your undocumented and your different kinds of visas and then your residents, is you've got a workforce that's segmented And each of those segments are experiencing different kinds and different levels of exploitative um, behaviour by employers. Absolutely correct, Dan. So the the Australians who traditionally work in the industry and still work in the industry, they'll do the the, the higher paid jobs, the packing jobs. They'll often be families of, of farm owners and they normally get well looked after. They get paid for the hours they work and they're normally on the books and and everything's above board with the migrant workers it's a it varies greatly um, some of the seasonal workers from the pacific labor area also tend to get underpaid um, when they do get paid correctly they tend to have those payments reduced through what they call um costs for accommodation and travel and all that type of stuff and they've got to pay back the price of their visa so they end up taking home maybe 150 or 200 dollars a week for a 60-hour week, which most people would think is completely unacceptable. So most fruit and veggie pickers or harvest trail workers will be on the casual rate. And $25 an hour, we'd like it to be more, but it's a fair guaranteed minimum rate. And there's nothing stopping workers from earning more in a piece rate system or a bonus type system that their employer can offer, just like any other industry does it. They have a minimum guaranteed hourly rate that people must be paid and they can have incentives on top. That's more than welcome. We just want to make sure they're paid a minimum of $25 an hour as a casual so they can actually put food on the table, roof over their head, and be able to live in some regional area in Australia and be able to contribute to the local community where they can spend some money at the supermarket or the pub. Of course. A lot of that money would go straight back into that regional economy. Yeah, and the government just doesn't get that. All their policies have continued to allow the sector to be, for want of a better word, systemically exploited for the workers And that just reduces money into those regional communities, those same regional communities that need the money the most. So what keeps someone in a field for 10 hours a day working for as little as $3 an hour? The answer lies in what I call... The Seven Circles of Temporary Migrant Worker Hell. What are the Seven Circles of Temporary Migrant Worker Hell? 1. The Visa Requirements 2. Our Industrial Relations System 3. The Labour Hire Companies Four, the unfair competition between farmers. Five, the supermarket duopoly. Six, the government's neoliberal obsession with fiscal surpluses. Seven, globalised extractive capitalism.
Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. In this episode, we take a look at the caste system that began on the Indian subcontinent some two millennia ago. That system as it evolved has often been compared to the structures of racial oppression in the US. In her book, Ants Among Elephants, An Untouchable Family and the Making of Modern India, author Sujata Gidla writes a memoir of caste by telling the story of her own Dalit family. Speaking with New Labor Forum editor-at-large Kafwi Ato, Gidla suggests she found some of the motivation and courage to write this personal account through witnessing African-Americans' acts of resistance to racism. A resident of the United States since age 26, Gidla completed the writing of the book while working as a New York City train conductor and member of Local 100 of the Transit Workers Union. Welcome, Sujata. What are you know some of the, the questions that are driving the book or motivated you to, to write it? Ever since I was nine or 10 years old, I would see the elders, the uh, grown-ups in my family, like standing up and wringing their hands when an upper caste person would pass by. And it used to be very insulting to me that why they should be so servile. But I couldn't ask them, why are we socially inferior despite our parents being highly educated and having respectable jobs and all that stuff? And it's very hard to understand. And somehow I knew that I couldn't ask that question. There is some shame involved in it. So I never asked anybody, why is it that we are treated like this? Why are we being seen as inferiors? So I was in India until I was 26 years old, but I did not have the courage to ask these questions. And so when I came to America, the circumstances changed because one, anybody in America who's not a South Asian does not understand caste, let alone know about it. If I tell them that like I'm uh, of inferior caste, they don't understand what's involved in that some of them would, would even laugh you know whoa what do you mean like you're like anybody else yes it's true that for non-south asians i'm no different from any other indian so uh, talking to these people it gave me some confidence that i could openly talk about these questions caste and social status and the second set of circumstances is witnessing the situation condition of Black people in America. And there is Black oppression in America and untouchability in India. You know, they have the same kind of characteristics like segregated housing. The Jim Crow is gone, but unofficially the, the discrimination still continues. And then there is this taboo against interracial marriage. All of these things would make anyone, any Indian think immediately of untouchability. But then there are some differences also. Black people in America don't hide the fact that they're Blacks unless they don't even have an opportunity to hide. There is that skin color difference. And also there, you know, 
they talk openly about racism. They make jokes about racism. They make jokes about being black. They make jokes about on-bike people. We in India, the untouchables don't have that kind of confidence. We still conduct ourselves as blacks would have conducted themselves in the Jim Crow South. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your great book. And I really enjoyed it. And I I encourage everyone to get a copy. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Issues like those raised in today's podcast form the basis of the classroom experience at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu. Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Let's go to our live line right now. Joining us from Detroit, Michigan, Mr. George Troya. George is president of the American Federation of Musicians. That would be Local 5. And their website is DetroitMusicians.net. Hey, George, how are we doing today, my brother? Very good. Thanks for having good. me. Appreciate it. Not, not a problem. Not a problem. Talk to me about your history. I mean... A very long history. I was reading, what is it, 51 years? Is that right? Yes, I've been a Local 5 member for 51 years. Correct. And so how old were you when you joined uh, Local 5 over there? Officially 19. Uh, I had tried to join at 16 because I was working in my dad's band. And he, it was a, under a contract, so he used to get get a work permit for me, but they wouldn't take take me as a full member. So, uh-huh. uh, but they so, did at nineteen because I took a job that was six nights a week. So, so what music? What uh, what instrument do you play? I play trombone. That's my major instrument. Okay, but I do Any play other? lower brass, yeah, and piano, some piano. I was a teacher so, too for. Three- 30 of those years, so I've played a lot of instruments sessions. George, let me ask you about some of the venues here, and, and I could speak to this because I know, um, especially in Cleveland, there was uh, a little tug of war going a couple years back where when they did uh, like live plays and uh, they, they needed a, an orchestra to accompany them, sometimes they would go with a recording instead of the live performance to go along with that. And because it was cheaper and it was already done, they didn't have to pay uh, musicians. Has some of that been going on in Detroit? Just have to ask you that question. Well, you know, it's funny you ask, because that's kind of how I got into the the, uh, political part of it. I was one of the early members of a group called the 
Theater Musicians Association, and that's founded throughout the whole country. And we were addressing that problem, that they were replacing pit orchestras with recordings. So we've lobbied against that as the best we can, and we do get help from the AFM. They negotiate our touring, our national touring agreements, which usually sends out all the big shows first. Mm-hmm. Now, locally, what we do to keep to make sure it's just not a total recording, we have stuff built into our contract where they're going to have to pay a certain amount of musicians, period, whether they use them or not. We call them standbys. <laughs> so that deters them. They'd rather have the real thing. Plus, we've informed a lot of our public that, you know, ticket prices are not going down and you're getting right. an inferior product if you're just getting a recording, you know. So. Oh, I hear you. I, I know there was some pushback when I mentioned what happened here a couple years ago. They said, wait a minute, I'm paying like $150 for a ticket and I'm not oh, getting yeah. a live performance. I mean, there's oh, something absolutely. wrong with that. Yeah, that's not the art form the way it was created. You know, what it no. irks me especially is these ballet companies that do this. Uh, years ago, they all traveled with an orchestra or hired an orchestra. Uh, ballet, you know, I understand it's the dancing on the stage, but it's also a huge chunk is the music underneath, you know? Sure, sure. So, uh, it's all part of it. Yes, exactly. Well, George Troya, president of Local 5 of the American Federation of Musicians, and you can find more at DetroitMusicians.net. Well, uh, you keep it going, my brother, and uh, best of luck to you, your whole team over there at Local 5, all right? All right, thank you very much. Okay, that's all we've got for you this time, but there are now more than 150 shows in the Labour Radio Podcast Network. And the numbers are continuing to grow. Honestly, it feels like barely a week goes by when I don't see an email in my inbox from Harold Phillips welcoming a new member to the group. So what I'm getting at is you may have checked out the website before, but there's probably something new there since last time you looked. That's labourradionetwork.org in case you're unacquainted. You can also check the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram to find out both about new shows and new episodes from shows that may have existed for a while. If you liked any of the clips today, you can find links to the full episodes in the show notes. And once again, they're at labourradionetwork.org. Whether it's the Solidarity Podcast, the Solidarity Centre Podcast, Solidarity Reinvented, or shows we didn't include today, like Solidarity Breakfast, Solidarity Works from the United Steelworkers, and Solidaire, si tu parles français. There's a lot to choose from. Labour Radio Podcast Weekly was edited and produced this week by Chris Garlock and myself, and promoted on social media by Harold Phillips. Hi, Harold. For Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Patrick Dixon. Hope to see you again.